Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash knoxrobinson to learn more. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is is Labyrinth. First, do no harm. So says the Hippocratic Oath, historically taken by physicians, or at least a 17th century version of it. The original oath, which contains similar language, dates to ancient Greece. It's a tentpole principle of modern medicine. And yet, doctors, surgeons, and other medical practitioners routinely do cause harm. In some sense, it's unavoidable. Every profession and practice has an error rate. Airbags in cars have an error rate. Food safety testing has an error rate. And so does cancer diagnosis and heart surgery. Medical malpractice is a problem more prevalent than most people realize. A Johns Hopkins study from 2016 concluded that medical errors caused 251,000 annual deaths, which would make it the third most common cause of death after heart disease and cancer. That figure is complicated because it may include medical complications and may be skewed by a patient study pool of mostly elderly patients. Other studies have put the number of annual deaths from medical error at closer to 25,000 per year, which would make it the 20th leading cause of death on par with liver cancer. Whatever the exact number is, it's large. According to the National Institute of Health, a third of medical practitioners will be sued for malpractice at least once during their careers. That's because they make avoidable errors in anywhere from three to 15% of all medical procedures. Errors are most common in diagnosis and surgery. We weren't aware of the scope of this issue until we started looking into the numbers after a man named Richard Pallardy reached out to us. Richard is a freelance writer in Chicago, and today he's telling us the story of the medical odyssey that befell his mother in the fall of 2015. My father and mother, they lived in the western suburbs of Chicago and ran a business together. It's basically industrial sales. He did the sales part and she did the administrative part and also was a uh, nature educator. She was originally a high school biology teacher and 
as we got older, uh, returned to what is, was really her true passion, which was education. So instead of going back to high school education, she began working as a docent at a forest preserve, taught classes to young young children, some of them from very disadvantaged backgrounds, and basically getting them enthusiastic about nature, getting them out there, you know, identifying leaves and insects and collecting frogs and turtles and observing them and learning how to be respectful of nature and what humans can give back to nature and conversely what nature can give to us. Hmm. Um, That was really her passion. That passion was put on hold when Richard's mother fell in the bathroom and broke her arm. Imaging done at the local emergency room showed some unusual bone lesions, and she was referred to a major research hospital in Chicago. They had additional imaging done to examine this lesion and see what was going on. And without even doing blood work, which is pretty standard in a case like that, derived kind of a provisional diagnosis of multiple myeloma. Multiple myeloma is a rare form of cancer that affects white blood cells in the bone marrow. Needless to say, it is a quite serious diagnosis. They told her not to go looking up anything about it, stay in a holding pattern, I guess you would say, until the next appointment, at which point they were going to confirm it. And it was actually the day of that appointment that her health further deteriorated and she broke her knee. And so we had to take her to the emergency room rather than take her to the appointment where they were going to further investigate what was happening to her. How old is your mom at this point? Uh, She's 63. So young. I mean, my mom's 63. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like she was not only young, but very physically active, never a couch potato. She had kind of great disdain for that that kind of lifestyle and, and thought, you know, staying active and being part of the community was crucial. What were the circumstances of, uh, you said she broke her knee, which is what precipitated another trip to the emergency room? Yeah, she, she had really weakened. She was really nauseous the night before. So my dad and I were helping her down the stairs of their house and yeah she didn't fall we were just walking her down the stairs and like her knee her kneecap just kind of broke just from standing like the weight of standing on it wow and at the time is it mysterious to you and your father like wow that didn't seem like it should have broken her knee yeah we were incredibly shocked and uh, we get to the emergency room in chicago she's checked in they finally do draw blood and what they tell us is that there are very elevated levels of calcium in her blood and there is a drug that can be prescribed in order to get those levels to drop hypercalcemia occurs when calcium levels in the blood serum are too high and that can according to the mayo clinic weaken your bones create kidney stones, and interfere with how your heart and brain work. Fortunately, a hormone called calcitonin can be administered to help regulate blood calcium levels. And what happened was, there I don't know if there was some kind of miscommunication or what, but the doctor who prescribed it never ended up actually getting it administered to her. And we had, we had waited, to my recollection, at least an hour or two and we're like so we finally tracked down the doctor in the hallway said okay why is you know this we're told this is an emergent situation 
why has this drug not been administered? And it was just the most bizarre response. She was essentially just refused to help us and walked away. What did she say? Do you remember? Essentially, something to the effect of, like, I really don't know what you're talking about. And that was me and my father. You know, we're obviously distressed, but not being aggressive or rude or anything like that. She just essentially said no. And we waited around the rest of of the day. This happened in the morning. Um, And finally, she was um, taken up to the intensive care unit. Still had not had the medication administered. We've been trying to contact administrators, talking to the nurses. Couldn't get it done. Get up to the intensive care unit. And they had no idea that she was coming and didn't know why she was there. Wow. Yeah, we're still just waiting around in a room that she has she has no treatment plan in place. What is her state here? Aside from the, she still has a broken arm. She has a broken kneecap now. She's probably in some pain, but how is she otherwise? At this point, pretty disoriented, not, not terribly communicative. I think probably a lot of that had to do with the, the elevated calcium in her blood. I think that had some kind of like disorienting effect. So essentially at this point, we are the ones making the call on, on all these decisions. It wasn't really possible to, to consult her on what she wanted to happen. That must have been scary for you. I mean, seeing your mother like that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's very distressing to see someone, especially someone who uh, was always so incredibly self-sufficient and and independent, incapacitated like that. It's it's very alarming. Most people who have some kind of relationship with their parents at some point will be probably involved in their care, um, but at that point, like I've felt like I was young enough that that was, you know, a decade or two away, Mm -hmm. which in retrospect seems very naive. People get sick at any age, but um, yeah, it was very uh, disorienting to be thrust in this position where we're trying to do what's best for her in unfamiliar circumstances um, and people that it's becoming increasingly clear we're not able to fully trust. So while this was happening, while you were doing all of this waiting, especially for a doctor to administer the drug that you knew that she needed to have administered, what was the other staff like? Were were there nurses checking in on you or were you just sort of left alone and you felt like you were completely forgotten? Pretty much the latter. Yeah, we had, for the most part, had to go track people down. You know, there was somebody that would come by every once in a while, still didn't really seem to know what was going on. It took them a while to communicate with the uh, emergency room downstairs to determine why she had been brought up in the first place. Yeah, they were mystified. And it took until that night for us, and we ultimately had to demand that like a hospital administrator come down, and the administrator was ultimately the one that finally got the medication administered to her. So we essentially spent like a whole, whole like, working day in the hospital before she actually got the medication administered to her. Okay, so when they finally give her this drug up in the intensive care unit, how does she react? And I assume you're. this is kind of the evening or nighttime now. Are you staying over at the hospital with her? Yeah, I was the one who ended up uh, spending the night with her. Everyone else went home uh, to get some rest. 
at this point, I'm not even sure if it was, you know, painkiller drugs or if it was, you know, the calcium in her blood, but she was still very, very out of it. It kind of seemed like she may have been hallucinating to some degree. I can't say that with any certainty, but uh, she was not communicative. Richard's mother was then prescribed kidney dialysis because the elevated calcium had damaged her kidneys. But in this very large hospital, there were no dialysis machines available until the next day. And it wasn't until four days later that the doctors finally reviewed the imaging his mother had undergone weeks ago. And at this point, they determined that Richard's mother did not have multiple myeloma after all, but rather a condition called parathyroid adenoma. What ends up happening is that calcium gets pulled from the bones, so they become very brittle. And I think probably that is why when she slipped and fell in the bathroom, her arm broke. At that point, the adenoma had reached the size of a baseball or a fist. Can you tell us now more about adenoma? Describe that condition in more detail. Sure. Um, so the parathyroid gland, I think, among other functions, is responsible for regulating calcium in the body. Um, and it's located inside the uh, actual thyroid glands, which are in, in your neck, like the throat area. In the case of these adenomas, these benign tumors, the, essentially the function of the gland just gets out of whack. And if detected early enough, it's a survivable disease. Hmm. Um, it could just be removed. But at, at this point, because she was so unstable, they were hesitant to even conduct surgery. They had to track down a pediatric surgeon who was really used to dealing with like very delicate cases and had a very particular skill set because other physicians weren't willing to conduct surgery because she was so unstable and that would have put them in some liability. Hmm. So the tumor itself in these cases is benign, but it just happened to be growing in a place that disrupted the normal function of an important gland, which caused excess calcium to get into her blood. Exactly. How big is the adenoma again at this point? Of almost uh, the size of a fist, and it's supposed to be the size of a pea. The growth of that tumor was extremely rapid because, it, like, at the time that she had the imaging done two weeks prior, it was not nearly that large, so it just, like, took off. Hmm. So this is, like, two weeks in. They finally get the correct diagnosis. Yeah. At this point, we did ultimately find somebody to uh, the pediatric surgeon who was willing to conduct the surgery. And this was over a week after they even detected that that was what was going on. The surgeon warned them that this was a very risky procedure and that she might not survive. In fact, the surgery itself goes as smoothly as such, something like that can go. She survives is brought back into the ICU. And from there, she seems relatively stable and we're assured that there's at least a significant chance that she will survive this. How do you and your father and the rest of your family, how are you feeling in that moment after the surgery? Just relief that maybe this was on the upswing, you know, was tough enough to pull through and that we were essentially trusted that at least there was a chance she could make a, a fairly full recovery and just get back to life. 
is she still out of it? Are you not able to speak with her or talk to her? Yeah, not communicative. And of course, she's also on you know a lot of enormous doses of painkilling and sedative drugs. You know, there's a recovery a day a day or two where you know it just seemed like she was uh, recovering. However, she had had additional imaging done, and they started to notice her internal organs had really been stressed by this flood of calcium in the body. The root cause of the elevated calcium, the adenoma, had been removed. Though she seemed like she was stabilizing, things took a turn for the worse. Her pancreas was now showing lesions. This was somewhat mysterious because it had been starting to recover. Richard and his family suspected the cause. His mother had also been administered statin drugs for her heart. And in her case, it was really ill-advised of them to have given her those statin drugs, number one, which we had told them it's pretty well known in our family that there is an allergy to those drugs, both on my mom's side and my dad's side. And so we informed them of that. And they're contraindicated in cases where somebody has pancreatitis because they can exacerbate that condition. So why did they decide to administer those drugs? Did they explain that to you? It was basically considered standard protocol for cardiology. I think her heart may have sustained some level of damage. She had never had any heart problems. She was not on any prescription medications. And when you raised those concerns with the doctor about the statin drugs, that they're counterindicated and that your family has a history of allergy, how did they respond? They were a little dismissive, but once we knew that those were being administered, we demanded that that be stopped. But then they were reinstated, probably by somebody somebody else who we hadn't yet had a conversation with and probably did not you know, review the notes in her chart. I don't know how many times they actually administered them to her, but she got them again even after we had had that conversation. Wow. So what happens with her condition after she gets these drugs? Her body is just basically in a state of of chaos. The main concern became the pancreatitis, which started to cause internal bleeding, obviously very severe. We had a conversation with a doctor like at the end of one day um, saying that, okay, if her blood pressure continues to drop due to this internal bleeding to a a certain level, we're going to have to stage emergency surgery to uh, embolize the bleeds in her pancreas. And there's some hesitancy to do that because of uh, the fact that in order to conduct that procedure, to visualize the organ and the procedure, they needed to use a contrast dye. And there was concern that that dye would damage her kidneys, which were already highly stressed due to having to, you know, filter out this excess calcium in her blood. They talk with a doctor and decide that if her blood pressure drops below a certain level overnight, they'll take the risk to go ahead with the embolization. Richard stays in the hospital that night. A nurse is stationed in the room because his mother's condition is that fragile. And lo and behold, her blood pressure drops and drops, falling below the crucial threshold. But the surgical team is never called. So she doesn't actually have the surgery that she, she needs to stop these bleeds. And a new doctor comes in 
think she's a fellow, so she's she's not the one in charge. Sits me down and says, "Okay, it's over. Like we need to consider like taking her off the, off the machines." Despite the fact that we have been told that this procedure was going to be conducted and should at least somewhat stabilize the situation. Gosh, how long into this ordeal did you get that conversation with the with the doctor? I would say that might have been like a month into it. And and was this her saying that your mother was dying? Is that what she was saying? Yeah, that essentially there was nothing left to do. And that, you know, it was time to move her to palliative care with the, the idea that she she would never recover, despite the fact that, you know, just the night prior, we, we'd been told the exact opposite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At this point, we're, you know, freaking out. We, you know, demand to talk to an administrator and to the doc, like the doctor who's actually in charge of the floor that day, as well as her fellow, get them all in a room and say, like, what happened here? Like, the, there's a very clear plan that we discussed with the other doctor last night as to what was going to happen if her blood pressure drops to a certain point that that never happened. Why didn't that happen? Why were we told something completely different this morning? The uh, the fellow, maybe a better term would be like resident, so someone still like on their rotations has probably completed med- medical school, but is, is doing their their residency. Denies that she ever said that to me. Just like flat out lies. This was really the the only time where I like really lost my cool. Was the only time that I swore at one of them. I was just so aghast that this woman would like tell a bald faced lie essentially in front of like two people who are her superiors and our family. We get through that conversation as much as we can. And they kind of, they kind of strong arm uh, the interventional radiology team into conducting the surgery on her pancreas. Uh, despite the fact that they don't want to because she is so unstable that they are nearly certain she's going to die on the operating table. But they said, okay, well, if you want us to do it, we'll do it and we'll try. That surgery actually ends up being successful and then she again stabilizes for a while. So after that surgery, is she just still in the ICU? Are they still talking about palliative care? Or is is it back to she might pull through this? Uh, yeah, it's it's back to telling us, you know, there's at least a chance that she could pull out of this. Yeah. So you're in this already, you know, over a month. And has your life been on hold 
this whole time? I mean, what about your father? Like, are you are you able to continue any semblance of what your normal life is? And do you do you as a family have concerns about insurance or any of these things as this situation drags on? So yeah, uh, we're limping through uh, you know working life, you know, uh, making every effort to have uh, somebody at the hospital at all times. So as this is stretching on into you know multiple months. Are you or any of your family like beginning to grapple with, you know, maybe she's not going to pull through? And do you th- are you thinking about like, do I have a chance to even say goodbye? Like she's not, you're not able to communicate with her. Or yeah, is there any point yeah. where she seems to wake up and interact with you, or is she just out of it the entire time? I think there were times where she could at least hear us. She she would try to like mouth words. But yeah, we never actually got to like ha- have a conversation with her. She was never alert enough for that. She would, you know, oh. when we were alone, she would like look at us and squeeze our hands. So I think there was at least some level of awareness. But some of the doctors told us conflicting things like that she was on so many painkillers that like she couldn't possibly be aware. But to me, it seemed that there were at least periods where, where she was. And the fact that she she was so sedated led to sort of other concerns about her care. I got the very distinct impression due to a couple of conversations that to them, at least some of the staff members there, she became really more of an object than a person. Hmm. I'll give you an, one example of why that was that seemed, probably seems maybe a little minor and cosmetic, but at a couple of points she had to be intubated so she had to be on a respirator and mouth is open the whole time you know with this tube in it and her lips were getting like horribly horribly chapped at the point they were like splitting and cracking and bleeding and we're like okay like why is this like not being addressed like i mean essentially they said like we don't care because she can't feel it so we ended up being the ones that were like applying Vaseline to her lips to make sure that that was at least minimized. So, like the fact that you know she was on all these painkillers, I couldn't feel it, meant that something like that didn't have to be addressed. Ugh, you know, you say that's like cosmetic and minor, but it it feels important, right? Like, I think you're right. It definitely is dehumanizing. Yeah. Did you get the sense that the people attending to her? We're kind of treating her like someone who was on very much on the way out. So she wasn't a priority? Yeah, I think there was some of that. There was a real sense of hostility towards me and towards my family, which apparently, from what I've read in the, the literature on this subject, is really pretty kind of par for the course for a situation like this, because not only were we kind of raising hell with the staff there and chewing out administrators and doctors, the thing is, we're right on some of that stuff, and I think they really resented being like called out on the carpet for their errors. One such moment occurred when it was discovered that his mother had a raging infection of some kind. The doctors couldn't figure out what the pathogen was, so they prescribed a broad-spectrum antibiotic. So they do that. Doesn't seem to be having any effect. My father, who is, has a, a degree in microbiology, and he said, well, have you tested for candida? And candida is 
yeast. It's on everybody's body. You know, it's part of the microbiome, but under certain conditions, it can turn pathogenic. Hmm. They were, you know, kind of dismissive, but humored us and uh, ran the tests for it. And as it turns out, she had a raging candida infection, which would not have been addressed by antibiotics because it's a fungal infection, not a bacterial infection. As it turns out, drug-resistant candida is now a well-known nosocomial infection, that is, a hospital-acquired infection. It's now been three months in the ICU, and it's becoming more and more clear that Richard's mother isn't going to pull through this. She has two more abdominal surgeries to remove deteriorated organ material and two more embolizations to stop bleeding. And, you know, at a certain point, they, like, they were not able to, like, suture up the wounds because the stuff was still going on. So there were, like, dr- like drains in her body. Oh. So they, like, essentially, like, just, yeah, just open wounds, like, draining into, like, bags. One surgeon who worked on her said it was basically like a bomb had gone off in her abdomen. Like when they tried to like look at at it on imaging, like it was difficult to distinguish the organs. But yet at this point, we're still being told that you know there's a chance that she could recover, and that you know she, you know she'd probably need a significant convalescence period after you know she stabilized, but there was at least a chance she could recover a degree of functionality and like, you know, whether or not these physicians were being genuine about this or they were just trying to put off the inevitable and and humorous because, you know, they they obviously knew how agitated we were at this point. And I don't know if they were trying to, you know, forestall the, the likelihood of a lawsuit, but, you know, we're being told one thing, and which even then seemed fairly improbable, and now in retrospect seems incredibly improbable that she might pull through this. And then when and how did she die? Were you there? I was, yeah. On January 15th of 2016, evening before we had made the decision that there really just was no hope and that this was just prolonging her suffering, like... There's no point in subjecting her to further, you know, insults to her body and invasions of her body, and that that was really the most humane and loving thing to do would be to let her go. So that morning, my family assembled: my brother and sister and father, uh, her sister, and then two of her close friends and uh, their spouses. And they, yeah, they turned off. The, the machines and you know, it was over in a matter, matter of minutes or so. Oh, I'm sorry. How did the staff treat you in that moment? In that moment, there was one doctor who had conducted some of these later abdominal surgeries that we came to trust. She was, number one, a very talented surgeon, and number two, I think she was actually like a genuinely decent person with 
you know, the conversations we'd had with her, like you could t- almost see like the conflict in her face hmm. of, you know, how much of this to acknowledge, like she knew that her colleagues had massively screwed up and, you know, she was quite, quite distressed that we had subjected her to all these, these interventions and then it hadn't worked. And, um, the nurses that were there that day were, compassionate and and thoughtful which was not the case with all the nursing staff there some of them i think were also pretty horrified by how we'd been treated by their colleagues and kind of quietly told us that you know they admired that you know we had advocated so so furiously for her Hmm. but yeah the staff that was there that morning we we had no problems with they handled it like they should have hmm did you have feelings at that time that you were going to confront the hospital with what the mistakes that had been made? Or were you thinking, it's over, let's just go home and grieve? Yeah, we had already begun discussing legal action. And within two or three days of her death, we had already started meeting with lawyers trying to talk about how to handle this, see if there was a case or not. And why did that become such an incredible odyssey? Yeah, we saw, man, there have been six or seven law firms, and the legal system is really just not set up in favor of victims of malpractice for a number of reasons. First, in order to actually file a suit against the hospital and the doctors, you have to have medical record review. And keep in mind, there's three months of medical records, like hundreds and hundreds of pages of information about what happened here. You have to have medical review by two independent physicians that say that the case has merit. This can be quite challenging because you not only have to find doctors with appropriate expertise, but doctors who are willing to go on the record, essentially calling out their colleagues in the broader medical community. But so essentially, just to even get the case off the ground, you have to have those two opinions. And that ultimately was the reason that we were not able to pursue it. There's also a uh, statute of limitations. So we were seeing lawyers over like a period of several years. And I think ultimately we're not able to take legal action against the hospital or the doctors. I mean, that system is really just kind of stacked against the victim. Like the burden of proof is a certain sense probably should be. Um, but I think it's kind of an unrealistic standard. Um, I mean, a lot of these cases just never get litigated because it's, it's too challenging. Another issue Richard wrote about in an essay is the financial burden. Many law firms won't take on cases without a high chance of there being a significant payout, and the odds of a payout are strangely higher for victims who survive than those who die. Payouts tend to be bigger for people who survive whatever malpractice event happens because then damages can be assessed in relation to you know what's going to cost them for continued care if this is going to be some kind of lifelong debilitating condition so there's kind of a metric there as well as things like lost earnings so you know if you're incapacitated and you can you can no longer work the damages can be assessed according to kind of projected earnings which is why payouts and even just cases that even go to court are less common with elderly or 
people approaching retirement age or people who die. It just becomes harder to assess what the damages would actually be. So yeah, I think that also factored into it because you know there are plenty of law firms that we contacted that wouldn't even meet with us. And also, what a screwed up way to decide the value of a human life. Like, how much work can you do? Yeah. Like, ugh, it's just, it's just despicable. Ugh. Yeah, like that's the only metric. It's, it's pretty horrifying. What do you wish people would know about the world of um, medical malpractice, or what do you wish that would change about it? What I'd like. To- people to know is that the medical profession is is very fallible and that placing blind trust in medical professionals regardless whether it's you know just a standard checkup or physical or if you've got something more serious going on placing blind trust in them is very ill-advised i'm not certainly don't mean to indict you know the entire profession but i think there's a lot of incompetence there's a real prevailing lack of empathy in that profession, which I think can lead to subpar care. Literally, there are some medical schools that teach classes in empathy because I think there's a certain personality type that is drawn to that profession, partially due to the fact that it's a high-status profession and it's well-remunerated, that they literally have to be taught how to have compassion for people. I think it's really a prevailing trend. I would like people to know that, you know, don't be afraid to question decisions or just ask questions in general and ensure that you understand what you're consenting to in terms of treatment and what the logic and the rationale is. Don't be afraid to call out an error that you think you see, even even if it ends up not being an error. You would benefit from at least asking the question and not being intimidated by medical professionals. There's a phenomenon called white coat worship. Hmm. It's kind of a cultural thing, particularly in the West, that medical professionals are almost kind of venerated in a way mm-hmm. because you know they've, they do have a unique set of skills and knowledge that the average person doesn't possess, and that's certainly worth acknowledging. I certainly am have benefited from, you know, the miracles of Western medicine, as probably most of us have. But they're not gods. Yeah, they're not godlike figures. Like, they are fallible. Even the very best doctor is a human being, will probably make a mistake despite their best efforts. And Mm -hmm. there are plenty of physicians who I think ultimately are probably in that profession for less than altruistic reasons. Yeah. I also wonder if part of the reason that you may see that lack of empathy is for people whose jobs, especially in in the emergency room or the intensive care unit, where they're interacting with people who are unconscious often, Mm -hmm. who are in such a state of crisis that they are a body. You know, I, I can see them over years slipping into a tendency to be interacting with these patients as bodies, as, you know, malfunctioning systems of kidneys and pancreases and glands and less as people. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe the last thing I'd want to know from you is, you know, after this this long ordeal of seeing your mom become a body in that way and be treated as a body, how do you want to remember her as a person what do you what are your favorite memories of your mom 
Yeah, thank you for for asking and for ending on that note, because despite feeling obligated to kind of get this story out here, I don't want this to be, you know, what defined her life. Like, she was incredibly smart and empathetic woman, placed a real emphasis on education, given the fact that she was an educator, and I I and my siblings would not be the people we were we are today um, if she had she had not placed that that emphasis on education and just getting us uh, she was a, a voracious reader and she really passed that on to all of us that's what I do for a living now I'm a I'm a journalist my sister is a journalist as well I think she was a very empathetic person like excellent listener very thoughtful very independent minded she always had her own firmly held opinions and ways of doing things. She was, had a wonderful sense of humor and she was a wonderful person. And it was, uh, it was a huge loss. And I think of her every day and hope that I can do her, her memory justice. Well, we're so sorry for your loss and that came with such unnecessary suffering on top of it. So um, thank you for sharing this story with us. Yeah, well, thank you so much for listening and for being willing to talk about this issue. It's an important one. Thanks, as always, for getting lost with us. You can find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And you can learn more about our work and how to support it at knoxrobinson.com. And please, tell your friends, post on social media, and leave us a five-star review. We depend on you to keep this podcast out of the ICU. Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. This episode was written and produced by us with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. These aren't the ads you're looking for. These aren't the ads we're looking for. This podcast is listener supported. This podcast is listener supported. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Come on, boys. Let's visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. ha 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 ha